Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Love Extremist Radio. I am at Netflix HQ in Los Angeles. Very excited to be sitting across the table from Darnell Moore. What's up, Darnell? What's up? Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Darnell is the author of the 2019 Lambda Literary Award-winning memoir, No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age Black and Free in America which was listed as the 2018 New York Times Notable Book and a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick. Moore is also a writer-in-residence at the Center on African-American Religion, Sexual Politics, and Social Justice at Columbia University, and a 2019 Senior Fellow at the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California, right down the street. His writings have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, Playboy, Vice, The Guardian, The Nation, Ebony, and other outlets. He is the Director of Inclusion Strategy for Content and Marketing at Netflix, and he is currently at work on his second book, which is tentatively titled Unbecoming, Visions Beyond the Limits of Manhood. That's exciting. Wow. How's that been going? I just talked to my um, editor this past week, so I am returning to the throes of writing. So we, yeah, what is that process? You know, it's interesting. Like, I tell people, I've not said this, other writers have said this, people like James Baldwin would describe writing as really lonely, as torturous. Yeah. But it requires, it requires commitment, intention, you know, like, you have to carve out space in a life despite busyness to think and to write and it's really hard to do like working full time and managing all manner of projects so I you know I was supposed to write the book much earlier um, but life happened I moved from New York for a job and now I'm here in LA starting sort of a new life here with a partner and now I'm returning to to the book and I'm I'm not, I'm kind of nervous but that nervousness is also like brief for excitement so it's cool. Yeah, that nervousness is important. It is real is man. I mean if I wasn't nervous I would be very scared. Do you feel like the concept for the book is evolving since you're yeah, coming to sure. LA? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had some distance between the time I proposed it um, the time between the time I signed the contract. Right. And now so I've had some critical distance which I think is actually really important. Often as writers, you know, you get a contract, you like jump right in. And a second book is really difficult for many people because one, you're worried. There's a there's. Let me not speak. Let me speak in I statement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had this worry that you know the book second book wouldn't be as well received or well written as the first one. Right. Because his first book is coming most of the time from a place like the idea has been sitting with you for some time. Right. Um, so you can by the time you're writing, you're very clear. Second book is a bit more amorphous for many people, for me at least. Right. But it's a, you know, I feel like the point of the book is still much, very much the same. Like, I I believe that people who are socialized as men, particularly in the U.S., have some reckoning to do. And I think the biggest question that we can be asking ourselves is, is this a category, like an identity, that actually frees us? Is it a cage Mm -hmm. or is it a doorway to freedom? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's called unbecoming. I really believe that, like for men, um, for us to sort of be quote unquote free, it is to like give the middle finger to every rule that we've been told we have to follow, and to say, you know what, like all this time I spent all this anxiety um, and energy trying to make the society society comfort comfortable, mm-hmm. trying to live up to this big idea of manhood. What if I just give the middle finger to that altogether and just like and unbecome yep for me that's what was sort of that's what freed me and I hope that the writing it can help some some others is there a story of the middle finger being popped up 
to your masculine Absolutely. identity? Absolutely. I mean, the moment that, um, you know, I think the moment that I decided, not even, you know, I'm a queer identified person. One can be queer and still very much like hold on to this idea of manhood yeah. and masculinity. I mean, sexuality and gender are not like mm-hmm. the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I think the moment that I started um, living for me, and that is, um, you know, living and, and embracing my full self, like, and, and like ignoring any sort of pressure Mm. to live up to standards that I never, ever agreed to. That right. is, like, you know, the way I walk, the way I move my hands, mm. um, the things I decide to do in the world, like, you know, not play sports versus dance or um, embracing the arts or the colors I decide to adorn myself in. And just fact, if I want to wear a fucking kilt versus <laughs> a pair of pants, like... All of the things that, like, get attached to what I understood to be manhood, the moment that I stopped and said, none of this has anything to do with me. Mm. None of this has anything to do with my personhood. None of this has anything that, and most of this stuff is not at all making me feel free. I feel confined. Mm -hmm. You know, the moment that I loved another man was the moment that I was just like, fuck all of the things, the ideas that everybody else tells me I have to somehow live up to in order to be fully accepted. Like, first of all, who's living up to any of that? For sure. And secondly, like, why? <laughs> yeah. So um, I would describe that as a, a pivotal moment. When I looked in the mirror and saw myself for who I was and loved the reflection I saw, as a moment that I said, I'm not living for other people. And so often when we waste our energy, and really so many of us, whether we are queer or straight or trans or non-binary, get caught up in this sort of, like, game of expending so much of our energy to live up to other people's standards, a standard that was made not for us, never by us, Mm. Um, a tight cage that I think squeezes our humanity. Um, And that's frustrating. It's it's the reason why so many men, men identified people refuse to cry. Right. Or don't have space to cry. I refuse sitting, I ask ask this sometimes when I'm with with dudes. (laughs) Like how many times have you all been sitting in a room and you were hurting inside? In your heart and in your mind and your body, you literally just wanted the embrace of a brother of yours, a friend of yours, a homie of yours in the room. You just wanted to be held. Mm. But never, ever felt courageous enough to ask for it. Right. And you know how many of us need to cry, how many of us need to be held, um, like, and don't have access to that. Yeah, you're going to make me cry, right? <laughs> I mean, because, like, we're living, we're living in the box. We're living in a cage. So I just want people to be free. So that's the book. Yeah, liberation. Here we go. <laughs> dude, so, forgive me. I use the word dude a lot. I recognize. Dude, fine. It's cool. One One thing that's coming up, there's first a, a couple things. I want to go back to that. You mentioned love and seeing yourself in the mirror and being able to love yourself and recognizing how you loved another man and that becoming a reflection mm-hmm. of acceptance. I want to get back to that, but before I do... There's one aspect of traditional manhood that I've really been grappling with, as a, and I'd be curious to hear your perspective on, which is protection. Mm. The, I can leave it at that, but I might just go a little deeper and say, when you are being threatened, mm-hmm. regardless of what gender you represent, mm-hmm. there is this masculine identity of the protector mm-hmm. archetype, you could say. Mm-hmm. How do you relate to that? in the context of standing up for beliefs, mm-hmm. your body and safety, mm-hmm. um, just being out in the world, being a human, like you I'm know, struggling with that. So you know, it's a real, it's a really good question. And if, if we, if we complicate it a little bit and think about, um, this notion of wanting to protect, maybe let's say people from harm are wanting to, um, wanting to sort of stand up for, if one can stand, right? Like mm. wanting to sort of stand up um, for for one's rights, one's sort of bodily autonomy. That is a human impulse that is akin to what one might call courage, to what one might call like the refusal to acquiesce to injustice, to the hunger for justice that is sort of bigger than gender. You know, when I think about the people in my life who were heroes and I use that, you know, um, I use that word specifically because often we think about heroes as a gendered concept. Right. Um, that was my mom. 
My yeah. mom had me at 16 years old and like didn't finish high school and raised me and my sisters after got a diploma after I went off and got three degrees. Like wow. she survived domestic um, abuse. She survived the welfare state. Like she survived both the fist that were that were that were pounded upon her by like institutional and systemic racism and sexism and misogyny and literal fists of men who beat her, right? She represents to me like protector. Like I think yeah. about like Audre Lorde, like the black mm. lesbian poet or June Jordan and um, you know, or like Pauli Mary who was like non binary and like termed gave us the term Jane Crow. I think about those folk and when I think about it in that way Rosa Parks. I mean, right. Ella, Ella Baker. I mean, in so many ways, I think we have been socialized to believe because of the of patriarchy that it is the man's role to protect, that it is the man's role to sort of be the breadwinner of the house. Literally, we have um, some religious ideology that reinforces that and says that the man is the crown, um, is the head of the home, the head of the woman, all of these ideas that reinforce this notion that we believe to be true. I actually want to challenge all of that and say none of that shit is true. Mm-hmm. None of it is none of it is true. If we were honest, protection and bravery and courage are parts of who we are, most of us as human persons. Mm-hmm. And I think we do ourselves a favor, which is so hard, I think, for men, people who identify as men to do, to let ourselves off the hook such that when you don't sort of speak up mm-hmm. or, or, you know, don't jump in that fight and swing first. Yeah. You know, you start thinking, you know, this call people punks. You call them weak when really what they're probably doing is like de-escalating or not responding in ways that we tell people they ought to. So mm-hmm. I would say, like, we can do ourselves a favor by letting ourselves off that hook. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey in exploring that because I think I come from the opposite spectrum where mm-hmm. I've been... I'm coming off of a, a sickness and mm-hmm. healing. And in that healing, I become very self-protective. For sure. And so my response to fight or flight is freeze. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, I feel less effective as a protector of mm-hmm. the family, the loved ones, mm-hmm. the people that I want to support. Recognizing that maybe out of the gendered context yeah. and just as someone as who wants to. Person. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think you know, that's and, really valuable. I, mean, if you think, I, love, uh, I appreciate you bringing up sickness because I do think one of the reasons why at least another, a lot of men I know, including myself, fear even something like going to the doctors. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, is because of this notion of, like, our Weakness. wanting to run away from vulnerability. Yep. From the fact that our bodies may not be strong, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. So much of that plays into it. You know, but if we think about ourselves as, like, mutually constant, like, people who are with, within community, you know, like, and if you think about sort of mutual protection, mm. mutual care, which is to say that at some point, you may not be in a position to care for anyone. Right. I won't be. And I have to be open to that possibility. And inevitability. That inevitability that it's okay for someone to care for me. Yeah. That was one of the hardest things, you know actually, I mean? in being sick. Actually, yeah. like, calling a friend, I remember. And being like, yo, I'm not okay right now. Like, can you come over? Yeah. And I broke down after I made that phone call. Because, sure. like, we're not, we're not socially, we're not socialized to, like, ask for help like that. No, we're not. Especially when it's physical like yeah. that. Yeah, thank you for articulating that. So I want to I wanna re- rewind a little bit. You mentioned love. And this is Love Extremist Radio. And two of the questions I really like to focus on are, first off, how do you define love? Mm-hmm. And the second one is... What are you an extremist for? Love that. Okay. So how do I define love? I, for several years now, have been toying with this idea that love is the energy that removes or erases the distance that keeps any of us from the other. Mm. So love, if it is true, should remove the gap. The gap that keeps so many of us apart whether that is in your bedroom. Mm -hmm. You can be in close proximity to someone and so far away at the same time. Mm -hmm. Or whether that is in sort of geopolitics, Mm -hmm. whether that is, you know, with strangers, like that gap is racism. That gap is sexism. That gap is like 
our failed understandings of who we are as human persons because we believe that men are not supposed to be vulnerable. That gap is like our, our fear of intimacy, right? That gap is misunderstanding our bias and love, if it's true, should eradicate that distance. It should eradicate that gap such that we are brought closer and closer together. Um, that's how I define love. Extremist. It's interesting that we talk about this in a historical moment where something like black extremism, although this is not new to history, has come up. Yeah. Literally, our government defines like black, like what? Yeah, right. Um, assuming that people who care about the well-being, about the structural realities, about the lives and bodies and spirits of, say, black or brown or queer or trans people are somehow extreme. So if I'm extreme... I would be I would be extremist um, for sort of liberation and freedom. Maybe I'm an extreme freedom dreamer. This is a term that Robert mm-hmm. Kelly, who is a historian here in California, uses, right? Like the freedom dream, which sounds much more precise to me than vision, because it's mo- like this notion of a dream that is modified by the word freedom sounds to me like that. In my freedom dream, my big vision, mm-hmm. I, I imagine a world where. All people have access to safety, have access to the things that they need to fill their bellies and their spirits, that they're able to not be born into a world in which they are solely made to be laborers for somebody else's dream, but that are not just dream or greed, Hmm. but that they get to sort of have the space to think about what the universe has called each of us here to do and have the resources to do that to do that well. If I'm an extremist, I'm an extremist to the end about that vision, right? It's the self-actualization. It's totally free, though. A self can't actualize if that self is being sort of harmed. Right. And if, you know, you don't have the resources that you can, that you need to be actualized, or if you are trying to actualize as the world is beating you to hell down. Like, so you have to be free of those impediments in order to be I've was told by a mutual friend that you unlocked a certain degree of um, freedom in your education mm-hmm. as a young person. How did you do that, and how did you see that path? You know, I, w- I was a, a young person in Camden, New Jersey, and schools like like public schools in mer- in most predominantly black and Latinx predominantly working poor spaces. Our schools were under-resourced. And, you know, like, I I tell the story about this one. My mom and I had the same first-grade teacher, Mrs. Banks. Not only did we have the first uh, first grade teacher, so we're 16 years apart, I remember picking up a book and saying my mom's name. So back in the day, you would sign your name in a book when you were assigned books. Wow. My mom's name was in it, which tells you something, not just about the closeness of our age, but by the fact that we were using the same resources, right? Right. right. <laughs> um, a decade and a half later, so I had, I knew that education, or at least I assumed, um, that education would be sort of a route for me to accomplish my dreams. And I found, and as an eighth grade student, I was fourteen. <laughs> I looked in the phone book. Wow. Um, and I had heard a teacher who once told me I could not write talk about these friend schools. I didn't know what they were. I thought they were just like schools of kind people. Yeah. I friends, you know, another word for Quakers. Yep. Um, and all I knew is because I knew that only certain people got picked to apply to them and to be accepted, I just assumed that they were schools for like really, really smart people. So I'm like, I'm going to prove I ass. Yeah. Prove I ass wrong. Yeah. And I found a school in the, um, in the Yellow Pages, Mullica Hill Friends, and I, um, got the phone number and the address of that book. I've called the school and faked my mama's voice. <laughs> nice. I did. I, um, I had a really high voice. Got the application sent to the house. I filled out the application, wrote my mother's parents essays for her signature, sent the application back, got um, an interview, traveled by public transportation about an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes outside of the city yep. to the suburbs of Malika Hill. Did my interview by myself without anybody coming with coming with me at fourteen, mm-hmm. and got into the school, and um, you know that was certainly a school hack. <laughs> yeah, 
Now, what's interesting about that, it was a remarkable experience. It was like, you know, classrooms went from like 30 kids, you know, when I was in public schools to school classes where I'm in a class of like seven to eight. Right. Wow. We called our teacher, Teacher John or Bill by the first name. Um, You know, what we did, meeting for worship. Yep. Um, You know, we had French clubs who not only looked at French movies, but did things like travel to France. Like I was exposed it was the first time I heard like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> nice. My white ass classmates sleeping in the graveyards. I'm like, what was happening? He's evil yeah. folk. So it was an interesting <laughs> experience. But what was interesting is that because I had to take the, the bus, I commuted back and forth right. between Camden and Malika Hills. I was exposed every day to the great distance, the class distance between oh a place like Camden and Malika Hills. It was a very early lesson that while. We have an ideal, I think, in in the U.S. that, you know, equity is like all people got access to, like, good education. That's not true. The fact that all people do do not have access to the same things. Right. You know, I had to end up paying for the school, which my family didn't have a lot of money to pay for. You know, certainly it was clear to me that the black people I encountered in Malika Hills who could pay for it were very different. Yeah. The black people I encountered in Camden where they could not. So I got a lesson quickly on difference and on access mm-hmm. and on privilege without mm-hmm. knowing what those things meant. And, like, I also, like, lived in a neighborhood um, as a child where the trash from the neighboring communities would be sent down <laughs> to my city. So it's like yeah, I know that Camden, route yeah. was, like, from going from Camden through Gloucester through Woodbury. Like, I got to see so much. Um, Were you taking the train? I took the bus. You took the bus, yeah. Public transportation. Yeah. And, um... So, yeah, it was a school hack. School, I ended up having to go back to public school after the upper division of the school closed, but it was a wonderful experience. And every, you know what's funny? Whenever I think about, like, when I think I can't, mm. I think about my 14-year-old self and, like, how I hacked that process. So when I'm sitting here now, like, I can't write this book. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but why? Like, you literally got yourself into school. Yeah, that's an amazing story, dude. <laughs> wow, Darnell, that's so cool. I want to go back to the way that you were talking about love. Mm. Love kind of, and I have I, I, come to this similar conclusion of this kind of oneness mm-hmm. as being almost like the result of love, mm-hmm. is seeing our humanity in each other, mm-hmm. seeing the mirrors. And I guess the question that I'm curious about is like, I kind of have an answer in my head, but I think the question is, what is the key that unlocks that separation mm-hmm. that makes us move closer to each other? Mm. What would you say that is? Oh, my. Of it, I think, has to do with. Um, I often say, like, the key to transformation, at least as I understand it, is self reflection. Self reflection, or fancy way to say that, like, self reflexive analysis, right? Like, you can't love another or, like, really seek to understand mm. another's perspective unless you know who the fuck you are. Right. And I, I do believe that it's our lack of, of ability to deeply sit with ourselves, to critique ourselves, to sort of know our context that limits our ability to do the same for other people. Mm. But what do I mean by that? So for me, as someone who considers himself pro-feminist, the best thing that I could do is to hold a mirror up to myself and analyze the ways that I may have harmed or benefited from. I may have harmed women folk, gender non-binary folk, either wilf- like willfully or not. Right. The ways that I benefit from the privilege of being identified as a man who has a particular gender expression. I mean, when I walk down the street with my beard right. and my Nikes and like my hat and shit, was swaggy. Always swaggy. You understand, like, <laughs> I know that that is what allows me to move through the world and possibly be seen, to be safe, um, to not be accosted, yeah. to not be, sh- you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, the moment that I started doing that type of work is the moment that I began to truly get a better understanding of what it means to be in a world unlike me. That is, to be a woman. To, like, walk the same street that I walk and possibly have to deal with some men or people calling out your body parts while walking. Like, right. I can only get there after 
I realize my complicity or my 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 placement in that matrix of oppression. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a way that I often say this, I say this like to the point where it's almost like I know people who hear are like, dude, if you say this shit one more time. <laughs> but I, I, I say all the time, like a way to think about it is like we're very good at naming whose feet are on our necks. Mm-hmm. We are not good at naming whose necks our feet are on. Yeah. And that is the work. I mean, well, that's part of the work. I mean, and third part <laughs> is like take your feet off after you realize that shit. Right? Well, right, right. But it's like it's that second part that I think is the key to like freedom, our liberation, our love that I don't know if a lot of us have been reckoning with. Have you kind of visualized what allyship looks like in that context? It looks exactly like that. It looks like that third step of like, damn, I did some thinking. I, my feet are on your neck. Right. And then when and, you see... Uh, the- and then I need to take them... Mother- I got to take them off. And and that taking it off means that, like, I actually might lose power. Mm. I actually might have to give up control. I may have to miss this job. I may have to give up on resources. This might not be the award that I will get. It's like... It's literally... Like, that removal of the feet is like a giving up. It is a reckoning. It is like a letting go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is what it means to be, like, an ally. Like, I always say, like, allies are like my aunts. Like, I got aunts. Like, like if we got in a fight, I'm sorry for using this analogy, but, like, I come from the hood. Like, if you get in a fight, I don't care if it's fair or if it look fair. <laughs> I'm jumping in. Okay. You know what I'm saying? It's, I don't even use, like, I don't just, like... I don't use allies. I use accomplices because they're right. willing to lose some shit. Uh-huh. They're willing to get in a fight with you. Right. Like my, you know, I just I love my family because they like, mm, <laughs> you might have come here for a one on one, but that's not that's not how this is going to go down. Right. You know? it's right. Like, we that's stand. not what our family does. Yeah. If one of us get hit, we all get hit, and then all of us gonna hit you back. You know what I mean? And ultimately, like, well, what, what we're sa- no, but what we're saying about, about that is like. That's every human being, yes. right? Which like, it should be. It's, that's, what, that, like, that's the oneness yes. of love. If we're, if we're ultimately going to get there, right? It's yes. like we're all allies when we recognize our mutual humanity. And, you know, and it's easy to apply. Like, I, I, we will fight for the things that are closest to us. You mm-hmm. know? Um, if I take that analogy a step further, what it would mean, allyship is not just fighting for the people that you care about. Right. But will you do that for the stranger? Yeah. Yep. We're sitting in a house of story, Mm. a place that is quickly becoming one of the most preeminent storytelling houses in the country, Mm. and you're holding an incredible role here in diversifying the stories that are being told, as I understand it. Can you speak a little bit to some of the challenges you're facing and and opportunities here at Netflix? So, right. I'm part of a really amazing team that's called Inclusion Strategy, and I work with our content and marketing production teams. And, um, and I mean, the big art way of thinking about inclusion, first, (laughs) D&I as a a concept. Diversity inclusion. Right. Like, so, so much... It's just empty of so many layers. It's empty of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's commoditized. I think it's the easy way for us to sort of like throw in a stamp to say that like we, we sort of woke, which often leads, which is connected to sort of like how we apply that for monetary value. Mm-hmm. Um, but our team and our company thinks about inclusion um, as not a cosmetic fit. Mm-hmm. Not quota fix, not surface level fix, but like, um, what would it mean to reshape, to shift, to transform our hearts and mind, our hearts and mind of a company, the heart and soul of a company, and the heart and soul and minds of the people within it, such that um, inclusion and the work of making space for other people, other stories, of all people, all stories is so ingrained in our practice, whether you are working in a finance office or um, the sort of cafeteria, that you no longer even need a team Mm. to be a thought partner when you are doing that. Mm. Our ultimate vision as a team is to work ourselves out of a job. Mm. It is to ensure that, like, regardless of 
what work someone is doing, that inclusion is a lens through which people under- can sort of assess their work and the practice. Mm. Um, we can make, we can sort of make cosmetic surface changes all day and say like, you want to make this amount of content, let's have this amount of content and this amount of people who are working on it, let's get a quota. <laughs> that doesn't change anything right. if the heart of those decisions are not coming from folk who are constantly, always, already thinking about how to sort of stretch the routes through which people come into the field Mm. to ensure that folk who are traditionally underrepresented have what they need to be comfortable and safe and successful in the field, how to apply that such that all that we create as storytellers makes meaning for all of the people we say are our members or our audience. Mm-hmm. Which means, in order to do that, we have to be reflective of our members and our audience. Right. That's at the heart of our work here. Yeah. And it's like remarkable to do it. Um, you know, the we are a company that exists within um, a larger entertainment field that through which, um, you know, all like um, racism, sexism, um, you know, the invisibility, invisibilizing of queer and trans folk and it's, it's been endemic. Um, Netflix has a bit of a um, advantage in that, like, we're a younger company. Right. And don't have a lot of stuff to, like, clean up from. Yeah. Um, and that we can sort of lead the way. And I mm-hmm. think that that is our charge. And um, it feels good to be part of a company where we take seriously this as a practice as an ideal mm. um, and not just a sort of stamp mm-hmm. to say that we like um, you know are about it or something and that our work is, is hard it's 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 um, it requires like honesty <laughs> um, yeah and I, I've been grateful I, I will say it's not a day that I've been here where I didn't feel like we were doing something that wasn't moving the needle forward that's great to hear mm-hmm. yeah this is a really um hot topic in every company um, and across the country right now and especially in entertainment as we see Oscars just happened Mm -hmm. and we didn't see a lot of diversity in the context of who was hosting, who was winning, who was being awarded or even nominated and yeah I think it's really interesting as companies start to assess their internal culture and not think about their impact on the world Mm -hmm. because so often they have customers, they have a community outside of them, and Netflix is a great example of that. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to see how you speak both of what's happening in the building and how that reflects out. For sure. And I think that's that's great. Are there any uh, projects or things that you're really kind of proud of so far? Or, I, I know it's early days. You know, what's, one of our values here is, um, you know, one of the things that we espouse is a sort of concept of freedom and responsibility where everyone on our team, regardless of tenure, regardless of sort of like rank, Mm-hmm. are encouraged to like be their most authentic and freeing, freed in the, uh, creative selves. And what's interesting is that I think unlike most spaces where you have like a DNI group that's leading the charge on all the initiatives and all the programs, what's mm-hmm. interesting about this is that every there are people at all ranges of our company, regardless of like tenure mm-hmm. or role, who are like creating pipeline programs and cool mentorship opportunities and really doing the work of like increasing the competencies of their external partners and in all regions that's great of our company um that to me is what is so remarkable and that is like also a sign that it is um you know inclusion is is a practice that's owned by us all and not just the sum, like our office. Right. Um, because we're like, wow, y'all did that. Like, whoa, you created this. Mm-hmm. And it's been remar- it's remarkable. That's great. That's amazing. So to break out of these walls, you just got to L.A. a few months ago from New York. Yes. How's it been? What do you? What's your perception of Los Angeles? So I have to be honest. I hated Los Angeles before. When I would come here to visit, like, it was cool. I'd be like, I could go there to visit. Right. And then I'd want to go back to New York. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, because there is a perception of L.A. that one who's not from here sort of has before you get here. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely like had it. Hollywood, you know, like, there's this whole idea, like, glitz and glitz. I don't know. You know, Plastic. 
And then you get here and you're like, what? Yeah. You know, what, what, huh? You know, what happened? <laughs> yeah. You know? um, but then I started coming here a bit more to see friends and um, folk that I love who are here and spending time in their communities, like mm-hmm. in their homes and got to see like an L.A. that wasn't just surfers. Right. Um, that really was remarkable. Now, this time around, what's, what's interesting is that I was already ready. Like, I've been in, I'm an East Coaster, so, like, I will find a bodega that is open 24 hours. You right. can leave me anywhere, and I'm, like, really good. Yeah. Um, so I got here and wasn't didn't realize that I would, my body and spirit would be grateful mm. for what I, what I sense to be a change of pace. I feel like things have moved much slower for me. I mean, certainly time is back, <laughs> but it also feels like it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was like on the New York grind, so like I t- like for ten years, right, straight, right, and wasn't breathing, you know. And I got here, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can breathe. Oh my gosh, there's sun. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, like, oh, I'm living in a place that I can see like I can see trees, you know. Yeah, like yeah. there's a hill behind me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like those, I live on a hill. Like those little things that seem little have been so great. Mm. My like I feel like I literally my friends came to visit me. And they spent a lot of time, you know, these are like my friends of many, many years, like decades. Literally this week said to me, you look different. Like, you just, you're different. Like, you were washing clothes. And not that you were just washing clothes, because you, like, when I was in New York, I sent my clothes to the laundry. They washed it for me. They folded. It's like, you literally were sitting down folding your clothes. <laughs> and for a friend that knows me, like, I don't have time to fold clothes. I don't have to, you know, I'm, right. I got, I'm, that was really remarkable. And I'm here also, I'm here with my partner. We both moved from New York. Uh, we moved here. I mean, I'm grateful that, like, our move to L.A. I, I know that the thing is there are a lot of people that moved to L.A. in search of a thing. You know, I came here with a job offer, yeah. like, with a job, which made it, I think, easier. So, Definitely. Like, we had help. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I had housing. It's and great. I looked for housing, and we didn't have to worry about much. That took a lot of stress. Yeah. Off. I, it would have been very different, I think, had I moved here under different circumstances. I have to be honest about that. So we were really blessed with the um, support of a company that, like, made things easier for us. But I love it, and he loves it. And, like, yeah, I don't know how long I'll stay here, but I'm so grateful that I'm here. Mm. I'm so grateful. We're happy to have you. <laughs> I saw you at Soul House, and I was like, what? Darnell, yeah, what are you doing here? here. <laughs> Out in the streets, it's like <laughs> yeah. all I do is go to restaurants and bars. The bodega scene here is not as good, it's but not as good. <laughs> you know the traffic. Ugh. It's a deal. But um, yeah, it's good. Yeah, my spirit feels good. Yeah, the slowdown is real. I definitely feel that. One thing I recognize, just where we are here in Hollywood, Hollywood is very much kind of a heart of um, the haves and the have-nots, mm-hmm. and you see it. Block by block. Yep. I mean, like, right next to us is the 101 Freeway, mm-hmm. which is a home for many people. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there's a, a high school across the street that looks like a beautiful new high school. Um, but it's public public high school that's predominantly Latinx mm-hmm. folk. Um, how do you find the kind of dramatic imbalance that we see in American cities, like, in L.A., as opposed to your experience in New York? Oh, um, well, both cities are highly segregated. Yeah. Um, if all one has to do is take an A train through New York, going from like Far Rockaway all the way up to the Bronx, and you'll get a good sense of how um, segregated cities are by race and class. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's interesting because in New York, um, In New York, I don't know. It's it, it's much more glaring. It is much more glaring to me here. Like, yeah. One, I do realize that a good proportion of those who are houseless, people who are like living on the streets, are people of color. Which is, I mean, and my sense is like, I've not done looked at a lot of the data, but like, it's something jarring about a city that sees itself as the epicenter uh, epicenter of like culture or, or at least entertainment mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which in so many ways has a sort of undercurrent of like liberalism attached to it where it's mm-hmm. like these are the people that seemingly care so much and they give and they give and they give but then it's like we're on the streets and it's like fuck 
Um, it's possible you will drive by many houseless people before you get to, say, any theater to go to any one of these big award shows, right? Yep. Um, and in in and in like many cities, the same the same type of thing happens where it becomes so mundane that it becomes just a backdrop. It mm-hmm. becomes another architecture for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it doesn't even appear to be a problem. Um, so that has been been jarring. I mean, as somebody who's been like, I lived in Bed-Stuy when I was in um, New York and before that, I now lived in Newark. Actually, right before I got here, I was living in Newark, New Jersey. Cool. Um, and I've only ever really lived in urban centers where it was predominantly black and Latinx and, um, and working class middle class um, certainly in many of those places have likely been the gentrifier in those spaces and by gentrifier I mean like been part of a rental market where my ability to pay rent was in making it possible for other homeowners to inflate theirs right um, and now it's interesting living here I don't really know much about the city I haven't I, I honestly like people are like where do you live I point I like over there like, <laughs> yeah like whatever that point area yep, yep. so I don't really know the the city in that way and like don't you know I moved here and I live like in West Hollywood like right. Laurel Canyon area and um, <laughs> you know and it's interesting I'm like we probably are like the only black people in our street you know, and like I've had funny stories. One person mistook us for, asked my partner if, if his mother was home. Hmm. You know, one neighbor thought we were Airbnb guests on the street. Mm-hmm. Like, so there's these things mm-hmm. that are like really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing, yeah. So I'll leave that there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's all these interesting things. You yeah. Know? The Uber driver yesterday picked us up and picked up my friends and I. Like, hey, where are you guys from? And we're, right. my partner's like there right when you just picked us up at he's like oh I thought you were Airbnb so there's all these interesting mm. things yeah huh. yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah well right there's these assumptions like oh if you're this you go here you live here yeah right. so it gets back to but you know like it gets back to like the the sort of red lining of communities yep um, the very sort of like clear lines of segregation the class lines, you know, like, so I know that there are a class of, like, folk within the entertainment and tech fields that, like me, right, like, that are living in, probably coming from other spaces, mm-hmm. um, moving into some of these neighborhoods and the sort of Hollywood proximity, right, which is changing the landscape, but there are also, like, people who, um, because of the very high cost of living, um, because of so many other factors, um, are li- they, they're living in like zones that are literally segregated, and right. so that's stimulant. Yeah, it just feel it does feel different though. I mean, I you know I'm stuck always by by what seems like the gaping distance um, between between communities here. Yeah, it is fascinating, and also what what I find, which is you, you might discover in time, is that those walls that seem to exist here between people can break down very quickly. But and I think that's true in most places. And there needs to be that key that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do we find that like place of commonality mm-hmm. where we can come together and be like, oh, you're a human. What's Absolutely. up? Absolutely. Right. And like that, we're all kind of like craving that. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we break it down, it's like, oh, phew, I can breathe. Like mm-hmm. I can see you as you are. And I find that to be um, really powerful in LA. So. We're coming to an end of our conversation. I'm curious to just hear, are there practices or things that you're doing to engage love and also kind of a perspective of liberation in your daily life? Oh, my. So every day, um, and I have the goal, even if I don't always achieve it. Uh, I started started this year, 2020, by saying that I want to bring as many black and brown, um, queer and trans, uh, I want to bring as many people who tend not to be on at the center of people's imaginations, who are typically um, don't receive, receive the same type of like communal care and love mm-hmm. 
with me as possible. Like I make space for our our, our big part of our kick down doors for and with. Um, and that's been one of my practices. I tr- always try to think every day of how can I plug in people who care about other people um, into any of the projects I'm working on, any opportunities that come my way. Mm-hmm. I, I try my best to like make space um, because that's what I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing in my life at this moment is mm. to uh, reach back, reach alongside of myself, reach forward, and remember that we can't travel alone. And that's been something I've been trying to do as much as I can. That's beautiful. Yeah, I just want to reiterate, like, when we recognize our privilege and the power that we might hold in certain spaces, it is our responsibility, ultimately, to find those who might not hold that privilege and power and bring them along with us. Yeah. Yeah. And this is indefinitely a house of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that. That's what we got to do. So, how do we stay posted on what you're working on? What's the best way? Oh my gosh! Well, if I'm doing my work, then y'all probably <laughs> be seeing me online. Just, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I'll be working on this book and have some creative projects that I'll be working on too. And um, I, I've tried to over the last few years, like just sew into my creative self and to sew into my work. But I'm like on Instagram. Yeah. I don't post as much. I do be posting my gear. Yeah. So y'all can check that out. That yeah. Day. Yeah. Darnell's it's, always rocking something dope. It's more Darnell on Instagram and on Twitter. But hopefully, like, I, I'm hoping, I tried to now practice the art of showing. Mm. And not just telling. So hopefully, if I do what I'm supposed to do, listeners, you all can yeah touch some of the work that i'm creating that's mm. the goal. dope that's beautiful well definitely follow along with what darnell's up to and we'll post the links in the in the comments i want to thank you for making time for this conversation sure. i've always really appreciated what you do and your work and your writing and it's awesome to have you here in los angeles and so welcome you in just to take us out What's your favorite love song? Oh my gosh, that's so good. <laughs> you and I by Stevie Wonder. Ooh, Stevie shows up a lot on this podcast. Y'all all listen to you and I when you get up to Yep, we'll play it on the outro. <laughs> Don't worry about it. We got you. Awesome. Well, thank you. This has been Love Extremist Radio with Darnell Moore. I'm Ethan Lipsitz. Please follow along, subscribe, post a comment, share this with your friends, and we'll see you next week. Take care. I am glad
At least in my life I found someone That may not be here forever to see me through But I found strength in you Stay here.